Hello, and welcome to Primary Sources, a production of the Central Arkansas Library System, where we focus on people making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of, and some you haven't heard of, but probably want to know about. Check out cals.org slash podcasts for more Primary Sources interviews. Welcome to a special edition of Primary Sources, a podcast of the Central Arkansas Library System. I'm Matt DeCampel, and this is the first of two episodes that will focus on the 2018 Arkansas Literary Festival. We will be interviewing authors who are scheduled to appear and bring their works to the festival. This episode focusing on Arkansas authors. We start with Bill Worthen, whose book, A Sure Defense, The Bowie Knife in America, looks at the origins and the iconic status achieved by the Bowie knife in U.S. history. So we've had so many weapons over the course of the life of America. How did the Bowie knife kind of rise up to the, to the iconic status that, that it has over the years? It started out as the first knife that people actually wore to work. There was a certain status to it as an item, the first knife that people became aware of as something that might be a part of daily attire. And you'd have your naval dirks and you have your kitchen knives and you've had your hunting knives. But uh, those have been a part of life for literally hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so become uh, the young United States and people in the 1820s and particularly the 1830s started wearing weapons and the weapons they wore were usually either pistols, single shot pistols or or knives. Sword canes some. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at that uh, time, uh, these knives that people were wearing did achieve a certain amount of notoriety. And then the name uh, Bowie became attached to them. And um, the and then uh, Bowie had the good fortune of dying at the Alamo. Mm-hmm. And that uh, cemented his place in history. Early on, uh, the Bowie knife was not a... A highly respected term. It was a a term of some notoriety, but the base of that is notorious, and so it was. uh, There (laughs) was a sort of notorious. Over the years, uh, Jim Bowie has come to be seen as a great hero, and and therefore the knife associated with him has become something of a, a bigger deal than it might have otherwise been. Well, and I, I immediately out of the gate stumbled into one of the, the, the traps of this history that it is Bowie and not Bowie, despite the spelling, or are both kind of accepted? Well, I think that both are accepted because you do have David Bowie, right. uh, one, of the, one of the great uh, uh, 20th century rock icons who definitely went by Bowie. I had the good fortune of growing up uh, here in Little Rock with a friend who was Bowie. And so I knew that, I mean, she was Kay Bowie. So I knew that 
That's the way you spell that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, them's what don't have the good fortune of uh, having a buoy as a friend uh, might uh, might pronounce it however, and I don't mind uh, any pronunciation. <laughs> your hackles don't suddenly rise up no, on your neck when you hear it called the Bowie knife. No. Okay, good. Uh, so you talked about uh, it being the first uh, knife that people wore to work. Yes. The first. So did did it have a role industriously as a tool as much as it did as a weapon, or was it specifically carried to ward off uh, well, danger? Well, it, it is my thesis uh, that uh, the unique nature of the Bowie knife was not its uh, form, but its function. Okay. That it was meant to be a self-defense knife. Other knives, you know, the hunting knives and whatever, uh, kitchen knives, they all have uh, very practical purposes. Uh, the Bowie knives, uh, because they were meant to be worn, they were, the, the first ones were decorated. They were... Um, they were accessories. They were mm -hmm. yeah. exactly if you had a, if you wore a watch fob uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you had cufflinks or and and people were very aware of style back in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. You have Godey's Ladies Book telling the world what uh, that what we were supposed to wear, or at least uh, our little world, what people were supposed to wear. Here in the United States, and so style was a, a people were very conscious of style, and so when you had to get a had to wear a knife, well, you weren't going to wear your old hunting knife. I mean, that would be gauche. Exactly, <laughs> you would be uh, you'd want to wear something that uh, fit the the form which you were uh, aspiring to, and that was uh, generally these knives were uh, at least uh, decorated with a little silver. Some of them had elaborate pommels on the handles. People in Sheffield really went wild. <laughs> and you'd have a, even etched blades with kinds of uh, quotations on them or something. So, yes, it um, that was... And, and, you know, part of my argument being it was the uh, the function, not the form, is that... You find in those early years, Bowie knives with guards and with no guards, with large blades and with moderately sized blades, with uh, different shaped blades. So you have a, a lot of variation in the early Bowie knives, which suggests that uh, there was not a, uh, a form that was uh, the accepted. Sure. Uh, then... Uh, Later on, the dictionary definition uh, came to be uh, a large knife with cross guard and a clipped point, hmm. and uh, that pretty much is now. But in the pre-Civil War period, uh, there was a, the definition was a little looser. Yeah, of course, of course, and, and it does sound like kind of a a weapon of its time in that you know you had with the the frontier, you had this idea of both trying to establish this structure of society and class and, and formality, and at the same time, someone could come at you at any time and try to kill you. So, so to your point of it being kind of a fashionable self-defense knife. Exactly, exactly. So people got in on the market uh, when the demand uh, began. And I explain in, in my book, uh, in our book, 
what I think the sort of evolution and how people came to needs to carry these weapons, at least in the Mississippi River Valley, at least in the west of the United States at the time. As soon as people started uh, carrying them, then the, uh, there was a demand. And James Black of Washington, Arkansas, just happened to be at the right place at the right time and produced, uh, started making these knives, very simple-looking knives, but with silver, uh, silver wrap uh, on them and uh, a little a bit of silver plating on uh, the ricasso over the blades. And his knives became uh, the sort of template uh, in some ways for uh, knives that were made in Sheffield, England. And so he really did influence international manufacture for, uh, for years. Well, great. That's... Uh that's it for now. Thanks for joining us. We've got to save some for the Lit Fest, of course. Exactly. I appreciate you not probing me further. Yeah, well, yes, you're welcome. So, uh, yeah, come uh, come see Bill at, at Lit Fest and uh, talk knives all day long. Uh, he'll, he'll be more than ready and probably will light you up to some things you never knew about. I'll try. All right. Thank you. Laverne Bell Tolliver talks about her personal experience and the historic relevance of a lesser-known chapter in the story of Arkansas school desegregation. Her book is called The First 25, an oral history of the desegregation of Little Rock's public junior high schools. Central High School and Little Rock, of course, are entrenched in history because of Little Rock 9 and yes. their role in desegregation. But at the same time, desegregation involved a lot more than the high school kids. And you've looked at the history of some of the younger and even more vulnerable kids that went through this process. So tell me a little about that. Yes, I was one of those young uh, persons. I desegregated a junior high school in 1961. And I was concerned uh, as an adult about the fact, well, several issues. One is that there was no information to be discovered about our desegregation process. And so I reached out to the uh, students who were in what is called phase two of the Little Rock schools desegregation, and that's the public schools. At that point, phase two was the desegregation of what was called junior high schools at that time, grades seven through nine. And um, I did some research and found some articles in the paper that revealed the names of 25 students who had been identified as being assigned to attend four of the five white junior high schools in 1961. And then in 1962, two additional students were assigned. In total, actually 25 students were those who attended those junior high schools. So you're correct in terms of it being a vulnerable age. And even though 25 were assigned, nine or 10 attended two of those schools and two attended another school, two in 1962, and one attended in 1961, one of those schools. So the numbers were small anyway around. Well, obviously, if you're going to shed some light on a piece of history that has not gotten much coverage, it helps to be a direct source on the issue. So what do you remember about that experience in that time? Well, I'm, and my experience in many ways is uh, different from 
others because each of the other students did have at least one person to share. But my experience was also different because the student population of that school was uh, fairly wealthy. Uh, the owners of some of the uh, companies and businesses had children who were attending that school, which was called Forest Heights uh, Junior High School. So you were the only one? Right? Yes. Yes, and um, I was the only one for two years, and then two other children attended when I was in the ninth grade. They were in grade seven, so we still had no classes. In fact, I, I don't think I attended any classes at all with children of my race um, after grade six until college. And then I'm not sure about the end, <laughs> so, because the school, that college was white as well. So um, that experience was different also in that uh, some of the other students reported um, that there were a number of fights and physical altercations and the, the largest, I will say, weapon that was used on me was uh, silence and being ignored most of the time unless someone pushed other people on me or pushed me down or something along that line. So a lot of it was just for you then a sense of isolation? Yes, a sense of isolation, being uh, ignored, being ostracized in, in a way. Again, there were occasional times when someone would push someone on me and ask, will the black rub off on you? And so the, the biggest issue was not knowing from day to day what was going to happen at that particular school and not being accepted. And from uh, a developmental standpoint, I'm a social worker, and so I do a lot of developmental kinds of issues. And so from a developmental standpoint, grade seven through nine are those years when you really want to fit in. You don't want to be seen as different. And I couldn't hide being different. <laughs> yeah, and, and at that age, you're not thinking about the history of what you're being a part of. It's right. Just like any, any middle school or junior high kid. Right. Uh, you just figure out how to, how to go day by day. Right. What about the faculty and the, and the staff there? Uh, the uh, faculty were very similar to uh, the student body. There was not a nurturing person that was present, although there were some that were maybe a little bit they may have had more compassion than others in terms of their voice tone or something. There were others who were uh, rather hostile or aggressive in their tone. N no one, uh, as a teacher, called me out of my name, but they ignored me if I raised my hand or ignored an incident that may have happened or something along that line. But there were a couple of teachers who did do something, I, I would say, that was a kindness. And in the, in the book I wrote, I talked about uh, one who was music teacher, and the choir director, and I tried out for choir and was accepted um, in grade eight. They had a glee club. And um, what was interesting then, as well as when I was in high school, is 
that every year I would have tonsillitis. I now kind of believe, you know, when stress affects your body, then it comes out in many ways. And for me, it was with my voice. So I was hoarse every time I tried out, but I was accepted. And so that was very important to me. Music was important to me, and, and music sort of gave me a voice I didn't have in other ways. So that was important. Yeah, a lot of people have had that experience, I think, regardless of background over the years. And that's a whole other topic we mm-hmm. discuss, arts and schools these days. But then having stayed in Little Rock and being a social worker, how much firsthand experience have you had in the schools since then? And, and how much have you seen things change, in, even if it's not necessarily as much as you feel they need to change? Well, I didn't stay in Arkansas. So I uh, attended college uh, first in uh, Springfield, Missouri. And uh, then I came back here to Little Rock and attended graduate school at the what is now the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. At that time, it was the University of Arkansas Graduate School of Social Work. And uh, then I went to Texas for 30 years. So when I came back to Arkansas and eventually moved back to Little Rock, I began tutoring in the schools as a part of my service of being uh, associated with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock as associate professor. And so the things that I have noticed, and also I'm a senior pastor of a church, and so our church that uh, has a one church, one school relationship with a central high school. And one thing that I've noticed is that having done a little more research, these schools are now predominantly African-American, the public schools in Little Rock, not the charter schools and not the private schools, but there are somewhere around 19% Caucasian students in the public schools. And so desegregation is not necessarily here in the Arkansas. Right, yeah. absolutely. And and do you see, uh, I mean, the students that you work with, do you, do you see them struggling with that at all? Or do you, what, what, you know, what, I mean, obviously, again, we're talking about kids in the key developmental part of their life, and they're, mm-hmm. they're going to be struggling with a lot of things. But, mm-hmm. but uh, and, and I guess, how, how has your own experience influenced your interactions with them? Well, the students that I see are largely African-American in elementary school. The majority is African-American, and there may be one or two usually uh, Latino-American students. I have seen maybe one Caucasian-American, so that sort of speaks to that 19% uh, issue. And so then there's um, there could be a perceived difference uh, for those students, although I've not seen any overt, you know, hostility or anything along that line. And that could be, again, I'm volunteering in the elementary school area. So I'm concerned about, you know, different issues, um, um, but in, in a sense, it's the same. The issue and the reason that many of the parents wanted their children to attend majority race schools at that time was because they wanted their children to receive what they considered a better education. When I asked my parents, you know, why would you even 
think about doing something like that, sending me first and then my sister to a school that was all white, they thought they were, you know, bettering my education. That was because the uh, textbooks, the laboratory equipment, anything that we had was so out of date. That had nothing to do with the quality of the teaching, the compassion of the teachers, the high expectation that the African-American teachers had for their students. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the quality of the textbooks. So our textbooks would have been several years behind the times and were not expected to get any better. And this was during a time in U.S. history where things especially the science, were advancing quickly. Yes, and it, yes. You know, outdated very quickly. Absolutely. So then, uh, I guess to kind of wrap up, what is the one thing you most want to see people get out of your book and out of your experience? I would like to see them think about the preparation that children need to have, not only for today in terms of living in society today, but think about the preparation they would need to be exposed to different types of environments. And if they want to have their children prepared, they need to spend time talking with them. Indeed, those students that had parents who sat down with them and and explained, you know, what they would like to see them do and even make them a part of that decision-making process fared much better than some of us who knew absolutely nothing about what we were going to experience. I would also like to see teachers, educators, and administrators read the material and understand the role that they played in making things so difficult for that group of young people as well as the teachers now understanding what they can do to make the environment so much better. I think some of the bullying experiences that we have, some of the environments that produce people who seem to be loners could be ameliorated if the administrators, the teachers, and all of those that were involved with the education of our young people would understand how to positively influence uh, those situations. And so, and I think that our children need to have people who care about them. And as several of the students have, they need to have the expectations that they can do well and that they have people who expect them to do well. So I'd like to see that um, as well as community members understanding that we still have a role to play in helping the environment overall to be better for our children. As many people say, our children are our future. They're even our present now. And so we need to prepare them to become successful young men and women and it's very important that we all have a role and take part in that responsibility. All right. Thanks for coming in and joining us. Thank you. Monica Clark Robinson brings an illustrated book for children and young adults called Let the Children March, about a much-forgotten 1963 march in Birmingham organized by children. It, of course, has gained sudden relevance once again with the recent March for Our Lives. Well, first, I got to ask, because the timing is is just kind of wild, that 
you have this book about children marching from the 60s. Right. But we're recording this interview less than two weeks after <laughs> one of the largest child-centric marches in U.S. history. Right, uh, right. What, what, what do you think about that, and what do you feel a, a, a connection between the two? Well, I have a lot of mixed feelings about that. I wrote the book because two reasons. Number one, it was a story that was being either forgotten or misremembered. And secondly, because I wrote it when the Black Lives Matter movement was just beginning to gain steam, and I felt that it was a story that would be very relevant again. But now... Here the children are marching again for a very different reason. And I mean, on the one hand, I'm pleased that this story is useful to, to help kids and teens understand that. On the other hand, of course, I'm very sad that it's still so relevant. But I think yeah. the thing is, what's relevant is the empowerment of children and teens and giving them their agency and letting them know that they can be world changers. So I think, unfortunately, until we live in the perfect society, which will probably never happen, right. this is going to keep being relevant. Yeah. And the book, the, the way it's structured, it it, it feels like a, a kid's book, but it's not what not what you think of as a kid's book as far as, oh, well, you're three to six. You know, here here's an introduction right. because it is very colorful and beautiful with the art in it and everything but right. but what is your in your mind putting this together your your ideal target audience within the the, the child world well officially i think we say something like six to ten but in in my heart right i think it's for the littles it's a conversation starter and that's what i've gotten from people around the country more than anything is you know parents sending me pictures and tweets on you know and things on Instagram of them reading with their kids and saying and we talked for 30 minutes afterwards and so for that purpose it's a it's it's a really good conversation starter about the book I just this week did three hour-long presentations at Parkview High School and so those teenagers are also yeah. you know are, are also and then the really cool thing is a professor at my husband's um, at the university who works at, she just came up and told me your book was the first time I'd ever heard the story. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so I think that it's I think that it's reaching people across the age span. But I wrote it for the littles because that's where the stories can start. And that's where if they know the story they will grow up knowing it and then they will tell others the story so so for some historic context for it sure obviously this was in the heart of the civil rights movement and had you, had we seen anything near this or similar to this involving this this young of a of a level of activism and involvement you know as far as i know I haven't heard of anything, but I'm betting there was something. The specific time period that I'm interested in um, as a researcher and writer, I don't know that I've ever heard anything where it was the kids and teens that were that was focused on them. Mm -hmm. I bet I'm wrong though. A story that's even more forgotten. Than exactly. This story, there possible. are store. There are always stories being forgotten or misremembered. D did you get a feeling or an idea as you did your research as to why this was something that that hasn't really had the historic legs that other events mm. during that time period did? Well, I have my theories. Oh, great. Um, I, I think that it's a scary story. I think that it's a shameful story because, in fact, in Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, written in 1964, he wrote that it was the introduction of the children and teens to the movement that changed the tide, right? Mm -hmm. And 
it's really, I think, shameful that it took seeing the faces of children mm -hmm. being put in danger to, um, to make the change happen. So I think that that fear and that shame that we feel, that we should feel, mm -hmm. I think that that is part of why it's being forgotten. Also, especially here in the South, I've read newspapers that had headlines on that day, th those days when that whole week when it sure. happened, and the headlines did not talk about it, yeah. right? It was totally whitewashed. So that's-, that's Literally. Yeah, li quite literally. Yeah. And um, I think that's part of it. I think for me, the other reason has something to do with more than forgetting is misremembering. The first time I heard the story, I heard a false story. Hmm. I was in church. Uh, I was on Martin Luther King Day, or well, it was the day before on, on a Sunday. And for children's story time, they told this story. But when they got to the part where Commissioner Bull Connor said to release the dogs and the water hoses, the storyteller said, and then the cops, one by one, knelt to the ground, mm. parted the waters, and refused to use the hoses and the dogs. And at the time, it was the first time I'd ever heard the story, and I was yeah. so moved by it. And I went home to research it, and I found out that it was completely and utterly false. And in fact, not a single cop refused mm. to do the job. Revisionist history. Yes, yeah. exactly. And um, that, more than anything, was why I felt called to, to write it, because it was, it was this myth of the you know, kind-hearted white that had said, I refuse. Right. And so I really wanted to make sure that we knew the real story and weren't telling a false one that made us feel better. And, and it is obviously kind of the idealized result you would have from someone right. who right. dealt with this for a year, but now seeing the children getting involved and how that did change the conversation, but not in the pleasant and, and movie-ending type way. That, I mean, uh, to be fair, the great news about it is that the children and the teens, none of them were physically harmed in any kind of a permanent way. Sure. Um, now, the the people that I've talked to, because I've talked to a lot of the people who marched, um, their grandparents now, oh, yeah. and they, they basically said, you know, those hoses hurt. Oh, yeah. They could rip holes in your clothes. So pain, bruises, yes, scrapes, all of that, yes. But thank goodness, none of them were hurt in any physical, lasting way. Obviously, emotionally, I'm sure it was much more taxing than that. But. And, and the memories of those people that you talk to, are, yeah. are they more about the, you know, just kind of the, not scars, but maybe internal scars, but, you know, the, or is it more one of pride? Of, of Oh, my goodness. There's so much pride. Yeah. There is so much pride when you talk to them. They feel like they made the difference they changed the world you know and they just when they heard because on i believe it was june 11th that was when and that was um about one month from when uh the children's crusade march was over in birmingham on june 11th just one month later that was when kennedy went on television to mm -hmm. announce um the civil rights act mm -hmm. of 19 uh Oh, yeah, 63. Yeah. It would have been 63, yeah. <laughs> he announced it in 63. And it was Johnson in 64. Right, Johnson 64. passed it in 64. Right, Johnston passed it in 64. And so when they when they heard him on TV saying this and yeah. saying, you know, the the events in Birmingham and around the world, they were like, oh, that's us, that's us. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so there's so much pride. Yeah. It's pretty incredible, actually, to talk to them. So even though they went through what they went through, the 
coming out on the other side of that was a, a very redeeming and important part of their lives. Yeah, and I think it changed the way they looked at citizenship in America. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for the rest of their lives, I'm, I can't speak about them in some giant swath. Sure. I didn't talk to all of them. Right. <laughs> but the ones that I talked to, it seemed like it was, they just felt more empowered. Now, were things fixed? No, mm-hmm. obviously not. Mm-hmm. But in fact, in the Birmingham Truce Agreement, you know, just 30 days later, uh, outdoor public spaces were were opened up. And uh, 90 days later, something else happened. And, uh, you know, and it's just like they saw tangible results in their lives, in their in what they daily had to deal with from what they did, mm-hmm. you know. And so that that just really is, you know, so incredible. And it was it was the numbers that they were able to bring mm-hmm. That was what made the difference because when the adults had marched, only about 150 of them were arrested in a week, and that's not enough. Dr. King said we had to fill the fill the jails. Right. You know, you have to create enough trouble that you have negotiating power mm-hmm. and peaceful trouble. Yes. But trouble. Yes. And so by the end of that week in May, 3,000 children had been jailed, and the jail was overflowing. They had to go to the state fairgrounds. They caused the trouble that gave them negotiating power. And, and do you think, as we, again, talk about history repeating itself, what what you said kind of the long-term result was kind of sounds like, even though we're still in the middle of it, but kind of what we're seeing with this latest student movement is that there's a lot of question, obviously, about how much tangible result will come out of it. But do, do you think there is the hope that this will help this generation get a lot more involved in citizenship and get a lot more involved in absolutely in, in their absolutely government? and you know of course I'm completely behind this movement yeah. and I, I think that I think that they are going to be better citizens because of what they're experiencing now and I actually have a lot of hope that they like the kids of Birmingham 1963 I have a lot of hope that they're going to be all the difference and 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 make the change. I think that they're going to have to not just protest peacefully. Mm-hmm. I think they're also going to have to peacefully cause some trouble. Like, are, are you talking like things like the walkouts and things that we've well, seen? Well, I even think beyond? there may need to be a walkout and a stayout. Hmm. That's, and I may be unpopular for saying that, yeah. but that's trouble. You know, uh, a, a walkout for an hour or a day right. isn't so much trouble. Right. So. Right. I'm interested to see where this goes, and it is not my show. It's their show. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm going to support and I'm going to be, do all that I can, you know, but I feel like if I were a teacher or a student in a school right now, it would be, I I would be very much trying to be a leader of the movement. But for right now, I think they've got this. Well, and hopefully at some point some of them will come across a similar story that other kids went through right. 55 years ago. Right, so. absolutely. I've thought about emailing Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg a copy of the book. Yeah. Not emailing, um, yeah. mailing, mailing, yeah. whatever that's called that right. people used to do. Yeah, that post office thing. <laughs> well, yeah, great. Well, thanks for joining us. And, uh, you know, again, uh, anyone listening, if uh, it, hopefully you can make it to the Lit Fest, but... Uh, But if you don't, uh, look for the book. It's out there. And, of course, there's copies here at the Central Arkansas Library System. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks. Jennifer Case moved many times before eventually settling in Conway, Arkansas. Her book, Sawbill, A Search for Place, talks about the personal search for identity, location, and what you call home. So 
your book you know looks at a question that, that a lot of people have have discussed and looked at over time from a, a, mm-hmm. a unique angle that the whole idea of identity and where you live versus where you call home, but also in reference to this, uh, to the sawbill as well. So could you kind of explain some of the, the genesis of that? Of how I started to write about it? Yeah, or? yeah, why you decided to write about it and then how, uh, how your experience brought a, you know, brought a, a specific building into the equation. Sure. Well, at the time, I was reading a lot of environmental literature. So I was reading a lot of work by Scott Russell Sanders and Wendell Berry and other environmental writers who often either explored wilderness areas, so the Rocky Mountains, and went on these wilderness expeditions, or they wrote about hometowns that they knew really, really well, especially farming communities if their family was deeply rooted in that area. So like David Masumoto writes about his family's experience on a farm in California from a similar perspective. So I was just surrounding myself with all of this literature that either explored outdoor pursuits and kind of validated the wilderness as a result or tried to validate living very deeply in place. And I was reading this at the exact moment when I had moved from Minnesota and my family was moving from Minnesota And so I was experiencing a lot of nostalgia and longing for that area. And then somehow that got tied up in Sawbill Lodge, the resort my family had once ran. And I realized if I had ever been able to live the kind of lifestyle that these writers were talking about, you know, going on wilderness expeditions and canoeing or getting to know a place really, really well, it would have been at this particular lodge. And yet the lodge didn't exist, and my family no longer lived there. And so I wanted to know as much about that area as I could in order to, I guess, create this fantasy of that kind of life that I would have loved, but also explore what it meant to have a relationship to place or to hear and read these stories in environmental literature when it's difficult to actually enact them in your own life. So what was it about the the sawbill, outside of the fact, obviously, of your family's involvement in operations, what is it to you that, that made it a special place and a, a special corner of the world? I think there were two reasons. And the first is just very, very personal, that my family had camped up there a lot when I was young. So that's in the part of the state where my dad would bring us backpacking when I was in middle school, and I returned to that area when a little older and went on a long bike ride with him. So it was a place I had always associated with family trips and enjoyable times spent outside. And then also it just fit the ideal that I had been reading about in a lot of those books, you know, this place where people go to be outside, this kind of traditional wilderness area and those two fused together for me. With the time and the deepness, I guess, of the memories that you had with your family there, do you think that that area gave you more of a feeling of home with your family than the actual physical, you know, home that you that you lived in in Minnesota? Yeah, I do. And that's one of the ironic things about that book is I'm writing about home and the loss of home and the longing for home. But the place I'm writing about isn't anywhere I actually ever lived yeah. <laughs> full time. It was yeah. just a place we went to for vacation. So that is an interesting concept to explore in the book as well. What does it mean to long to home by exploring this place where you never lived? And yet I think it's 
something a lot of people relate to where where they feel most at home isn't necessarily the house they live in, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a relative's house or a favorite vacation spot or some site that is meaningful for them in other ways. And so as your as your family became more mobile and and you experienced, you know, more and more locations where you lived, how did mm-hmm. that how did that alter your or inform or evolve your feeling of, of what constitutes a uh, place or what constitutes a uh, home for any, you know, anyone's particular psyche? I guess as I've moved more and more places. I lived in Nebraska for a while and then upstate New York. And now, of course, I'm rooted in Arkansas. I've realized that you just need to commit to getting to know where you are well. And I've realized that doesn't happen quickly. So in each of the places I've lived, it's taken a year or two for me to actually feel somewhat at home in Mm -hmm. that new region, but that it does happen eventually. And yet, it's also something I have to do purposefully. So I've begun to, you know, try harder to get involved in community organizations or get to know the the flora and the fauna of the region quicker and better than I otherwise might have. And so that's changed the way I think about home and place because it's not necessarily something innate, which is probably what I thought when I first started working on the book, but rather something you have to purposefully participate in. And is there one of those places uh, where you've moved to that surprised you as far as maybe a, a quicker uh, adapting curve into being comfortable there than, than you expected with a, with a new place to, to call home? You know, I've been really surprised in Arkansas because the birds are very familiar. They migrate south from Minnesota during the winter, and so I hear birds that I'm entirely familiar with just at different times of the year than I was used to hearing them, having grown up in Minnesota. So Arkansas has actually quickly come to feel familiar to me because the sounds I hear are similar, just at unexpected times, and that has been a pleasant surprise. And to the people listening, we did not plan this ahead. I I did not ask this question knowing that she would say Arkansas, but uh, (laughs) obviously it's great that you did. You know, you say that you're you're rooted and you're and you are in place in Arkansas. Do you think that your life will will take you other places, or do you think you're kind of, uh, you know, in a phase now where you you seek that that stability of place and and a stronger definition that comes with with more time spent somewhere? I I don't know what the future will bring in terms of where I'll end up, but my husband and I bought a house in Arkansas a a year and a half ago and we're working on doing landscaping in the backyard so we've planted a lot of native plants and we have a large garden in the backyard which I'm enjoying working on for the second year now and those activities have helped me feel a lot more in place in Arkansas than I had and those are things I never really did in Nebraska or New York, because I was always renting, I hadn't had a yard of my own to landscape or to plant. So, mm-hmm. you know, working in the garden like that and doing that landscaping, I'm really curious to see how those plants grow over the next couple of years. And I could see myself just staying and enjoying being part of that landscape. In the process of the book coming out and everything and, and talking with folks, have you found readers and others who, who have reached out with similar experiences and connections that, that you had with, with Sawbill? 
I have. I've had a couple of people email me who had gone on vacations in the Boundary Waters canoe area, so we're familiar with that region, and yet now live in Colorado or California, and they can relate a lot to the themes that the book explores. And then I've also had people who've never been to Minnesota talk to me and say, you know, that they've also struggled to to feel at home with a particular region, and so that resonates with them. Part of it is I teach now at the University of Central Arkansas, so I'm surrounded by academics who tend to move a little more often. Sure. So yeah. I think I think that's very a common experience amongst that profession, at least. Yeah, and, and a lot of professions, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think with each passing generation, you see you know, more and more people that, and of course, advances in technology and everything else have, mm-hmm. have supported this, but people move around a whole lot. I mean, I, I grew up in yeah. in Seattle, so I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I feel that uh, to a degree as well from the, the point of a, a culture change and a and mm-hmm. a environmental change, uh, even though, yeah. of course, both areas are, are, have plenty of wilderness to find within uh, short distances. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, 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 I can connect as well to a degree for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, and hopefully, you know, you'll find some more people to connect to at at LitFest. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Primary Sources, a production of the Central Arkansas Library System. For more information, please visit cals.org and butlercenter.org. Join us next time to hear more from people making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas.